Good morning. It's good to be with you all. My name is Joe Valenti. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 6. So if you can find Galatians in your Bible, um, we'll be there in just a moment. If you don't have a Bible with us this morning, we'd love to give you one on your way out. If you just go to the info desk, we'll give you one for free. We'd love you to have that. Um, or if you're not a church person, you can actually just flip open uh, the internet and you can go to Bible Gateway. We use the English Standard Version of the Bible, so you can find it right on your phone to follow along with us. If you would, um, I'd like to pray uh, one more time before we go to God's Word. It has been um, it has been quite a week for me, uh, a couple weeks actually, but this week particularly, because any time you spend time studying the cross and its implications for us. Um, the level of humility and just, I've just been overwhelmed by it. And my hope would be that in the next few minutes, you would be as overwhelmed by it as I have been this week. But that's only possible if the Holy Spirit does something spectacular. And so let's pray and ask God to do that. To consider the words that we've just sung, that what it took for our lives to be changed, what it took from us to go from spiritual death to life was that the Son of God would be murdered on a cross is astounding, Lord. And what we need this morning is for your Holy Spirit to move incredibly in our hearts that we would be utterly humbled in the shadow of the cross. So would, so would you do what we cannot do and would you do what I could not do? Move in hearts, change lives. Help us to see and glory in the cross alone. In Christ's name, amen. amen. So today is our last day of our summer series where we're studying the book of Galatians. And if you've not been with us, I really encourage you to go back to CVC online and study uh, through the book of Galatians um, when you get time. But if you have missed it or if you're not a church person, let me just kind of bring you up to speed real quick on, on the book of Galatians and what's going on and what we've been studying. The book of Galatians is actually a letter and it was written by a guy named Paul to a church in an area called Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, but it was called Galatia back then. And Paul, in his former life, was, um, he was a God-hater. Uh, well, not a God-hater. He was a Jesus-hater. Uh, he was a religious leader of the Jews. And the, uh, what, what he actually did was he was in charge of hunting down, arresting, and uh, sometimes killing followers of Jesus. But then Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus Christ, and he changed from being a Jesus hater to being a Jesus lover. In fact, he became such a passionate follower of Jesus that Paul actually went all over the Middle East telling people about forgiveness found in Christ alone, and he started little churches. And some of these churches were in a region called Galatia, and they had believed. Uh, they had believed that salvation is 
through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, and that there's nothing else that we can add or subtract to that sacrifice. Well, then Paul left and he went to start more churches and some people came in uh, called the Judaizers. And they were Jewish people who were kind of saying to the Galatians, yeah, Jesus is fine. You can believe in Jesus, but there's something more that you have to do. They said, well, you, you need to be circumcised. If you're a Gentile, you have to be circumcised. And that was sort of the outward symbol of following the Old Testament law. The Jews had certain uh, you know, laws and guidelines in place about what you could eat or not eat, clothing uh, restrictions, ceremonies, sacrifices, and such. Well, the gospel teaches that Christ is the final sacrifice, that we don't need to go through all of the rituals and the hubbub anymore. And so these people were teaching the Galatians, you have to add something to Jesus in order to be saved. And Paul hears about this and he gets all fired up. And so he writes a letter back to the Galatians and that is what we have in our Bible, the book of or the letter to the Galatians. <laughs> and, es and essentially Paul for six chapters argues um, against what these people have taught. He maintains that salvation, being saved from our sins, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and nothing else. And in a lot of Paul's letters, he just kind of signs off. He'll say, he'll, you know, share some pleasantries. Hey, everybody here says hi. Hope you guys are doing well. Grace and peace, Paul. Or, hey, I'm sending so-and-so to you guys to, uh, and, you know, to minister to you. He'll be there soon. Have a good one, Paul. But not in Galatians. Paul, like, Paul it just kind of hits the turbo button. And so if you're in Galatians, look with me at chapter 6 and start in verse 11. <laughs> he says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. So the common practice in those days was if you were writing a letter or a legal document, you would hire a scribe, somebody who, who wrote professionally, and you would dictate to them, and they would write. And so that's what Paul did with his letters. And so right here, he's actually taking the pen. It's like he's getting so fired, give me that pen. And he starts writing, and uh, so, you know, some people believe maybe he had something with his eyes where he wrote real big. Maybe he's pushing really hard. Uh, and writing really big, but essentially, in like in your terms, he clicks bold, 25 font highlight. Okay, that's what he's doing. When uh, when I want my kids to pay attention to me, like you know, because my kids, very, like when I say, "Hey, Logan," he doesn't like turn to me and go, "Yes, Father," <laughs> right? He's like, "Yeah," you know, and he keeps doing what he's doing. Yeah, but when I want it, when I want his attention, I go, "Hey, look at my face." And then, ah, 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 look at my face. And then he does. And I tell him, okay, here's, I need you to go upstairs and get a bath and then go to bed. You understand me? See him? So that's what Paul's doing here. When he says, hey, I'm writing with really big letters. He's going, hey, Galatians, look at my face. This is serious. And Paul goes on to sort of summarize the whole message of Galatians. Like as if to say, if you didn't get it, Pay attention, I'm about to boil it down to the essentials. And we've been talking in terms of equations, kind of like mathematics, 
Mrs. Marlowe loves that, right? When we mix church and mathematics, yes. Um, but we've been using this equation of Jesus plus blank. And so we're gonna use some equations this morning. I think Paul, as he summarizes Galatians, gives us two equations. Here's the first one. Here's the first one for all of you note takers. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Let's read again verses 11 through 13 together. See with what large letters I'm writing to you in my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So Paul basically boils the, re the reason that these Judaizers have come and preached a different message, a different gospel, is, he's boiled it all down, pride. And he says, these, these people want to have pride in their conversion of you, trying to get you to kind of convert to Judaism, quasi-Christianity Judaism, so they can say to all the leaders back in, in Jerusalem, hey, we got a whole bunch of Gentiles circumcised. Right? That's what false teachers do. They're just looking for numbers. And what they do is they play on the Galatians' pride. This is what false teachers do to us. They play on our pride as if to convince you like, you're, you're good enough for God to love you. You, you, can, you can add something to Jesus. I mean, God just doesn't love you based on nothing. He loves you because you're awesome, right? That's what false teachers do, and that's what is happening here. He's playing on pride. These people are playing on the pride of the Galatians. And it's easy for us to kind of shake our heads and go, oh, shame, shame, Galatians. But as I have considered this text over the last week and a half or so, I want to be honest with you in hopes that you would be honest with yourself. I am, I am more prideful than I would care to admit to you all. That's humbling as a pastor here. Because I'm supposed to lead by example. I really love feeling important. I really like to feel smarter than other people. In my flesh, there's a craving for it. Even the good things, even the good things I do, if I'm not walking in the spirit, I do good things so that people will notice me. And here's what I would propose to you is that to one degree or another, you're that way too. It may work itself out differently than it does 
in my life. You may not be as loud as I am or as arrogant as I am. You may do it in more low-key ways. But pride is the constant companion of every human being and is a constant enemy to every believer. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free. The vice I'm talking of is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all of that, they're mere flea, flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-state, it is the complete anti-God state of mind. And we see pride seeping out in every area of our lives. Students in the room, right, we see it seeping out in school as we compete in academics or in sports or with our looks. Adults, we compare our cars and our homes and our paychecks to those around us. Pride seeps out in our social media, in our marriages, in our neighborhoods, in our interactions with people in the workplace. It causes us to push our kids harder than we ought to push them and push ourselves harder than we ought to push ourselves. To consider the pride in our hearts, we need to look no further than our calendars, which clearly explain how important we are. But it doesn't only seep out in those areas, not just our social and familial areas, but it seeps out in our spirituality. Pride comes out in our spirituality. And that, like, you might not understand the, like, who would have pride in circumcision? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, we've never written a blog post about how many people here are circumcised, okay? Like, we don't, you don't like, hey, but let's bring it, let's bring it into the modern context, what outward religious things do we boast in? Well, last weekend we had a baptism. Baptism is outward. I baptized people. I'm a human. I have zero ability to forgive anybody's sins. Me dunking somebody in the water has no bearing on what's happening in their heart. We will take communion later today as a body of Christ. Nothing about that ceremony saves you or forgives you. That's Paul's argument here. Or how much money you give, or how much time you spend volunteering. You can get baptized like every, you can get baptized every day. You can take communion every day. You can come to prayer in the morning and pray at night and come to the church every time it's open and be in all the studies and all the life groups and give all the money and do all the things. But Christianity is primarily inward. See, the inward changes the outward, not the other way around. Your outward things don't cause, real, they don't cause forgiveness or real heart change. And that's what these people are trying to convince the Galatians of. You can do some outside stuff that will make God love you, that will change your heart. And he says, no, 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 no. It's the cross and the cross alone. See, it might sound simple, but this is where our, like our, our flesh and our pride come in. Because isn't there something in, there, there's something in me, isn't there something in you that like you feel like, don't I deserve God's grace just a little bit? Like, I'm kind of good, right? 
what? And Isaiah, here's, this is, um, man, Isaiah talks about our righteous deeds. If you would say, hey, I think I'm going to heaven because I'm pretty good. Let me, exp- let me show you. Isaiah 64 describes our good deeds. It says, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That cleans it up a little bit from what the Hebrew is actually saying. The Hebrew is actually saying, the best thing you've ever done, the most righteous thing you've ever done is like soiled underwear. That's what he's saying. That's what it's like in comparison to the holiness of God. We fight our whole lives to be important, to be accepted, to get ahead, to gain approval. And then the gospel is so difficult and it's so offensive because it just cuts our legs out from under us and says, hey, guess what? You are broken beyond repair. And there's nothing you can do or say or give. There's no ritual you can do enough times to fix yourself. It is the sacrifice, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone that can change the inward. My friends, to trust in anything other than Jesus alone for your salvation is to have nothing. It's just, oh, don't, just a little bit. Don't I add a little bit? If you have a little bit of cancer in your body, you've got a big problem. Just like if you have anything else that you are planting your life on outside of Jesus, you've got a big problem. Several weeks ago, Pastor Josh gave us an, 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 an equation. It was Jesus plus, and there was a box. I think it's going to be on the screen here. Looks something like this. Um, do we have that screen? No? Maybe? Okay. Anyway. It said Jesus plus blank, and there was a box. There it is. And Pastor Stone asked you and I, hey, what's in the box? What are you trusting in? What are you hoping in? Is it some past religious experience? Is it guilt from another uh, family member or another uh, religion? Is it your own pride? Is it money? Is it tithing? Is it involvement? There's a billion things that it could be that are in the box. And I would challenge you again this morning as we consider Paul's final statements here. If there's anything in the box this morning, Ask the Holy Spirit, would you cause me to trust in Christ alone? Holy Spirit, would you just rip whatever's in that box out of that box and out of my heart that it would be as filthy rags compared to Christ? Jesus plus anything equals nothing. 
Paul's second equation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Everything. Continue with me in verse 14. But far be it from me, says Paul, to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Bible scholar John Stott notes that this word for boast, we see it in English as boast. He said it's not about bragging. It's more robust in the Greek. It means that we might glory in, trust in, rejoice in, revel in, live for. The object of our boast or glory fills our horizons and engrosses our attention and absorbs our time and energy. In a word, our obsession is all of that. When Paul says boast in the original Greek, that's what he's saying. It's everything. It's my obsession. It's what I live for. It fills my horizons. Now, that might not sound weird to you, but to the Galatians, it would have sounded really weird. It would be, in, the, in a modern context, again, it would be like if I said, with a smile on my face, I rejoice in the gas chamber. Isn't that, that's weird. Or if I said, the obsession of my life is the electric chair. Or if I said, I live for the lynching rope. That sounds morbid. It's backwards. It's sick. Crucifixion in the first century was as repulsive as some of the things that I just said. It was repulsive. It was saved for the worst of the worst. It was often that they would, the reason that they would say, uh, hang him on a tree is because they would not want to say crucify because it was, it was repugnant, it was disgusting. And anybody who was hung on one of these was viewed with derision, disgust, a fool. So to their ears, it would have sounded weird. I boast, I glory in the cross? This, brothers and sisters, this cross I had brought in this weekend because it says a little bit more to you and I than the cutesy ornamental crosses that are in most churches. It speaks a little bit if it's even possible, about what happened on the cross. See, after sometimes hours of being beat and flogged, the flesh being ripped off of men's backs and fronts, they would be nailed to this. And the Romans devised this torture to hurt as much as possible for as long as possible. Some of those other forms of death are quick and it's like a walk in the park compared to this. 
and they would hang from their hands and the weight of their body would cause them to, to slump down and have to push with their legs and pull with their arms on, on, on nails stuck in their hands and pull up to try and get a breath. And then they fall back down. Research shows that the body would begin to react in its need for oxygen. When men didn't think that they could pull themselves up anymore, the body would, would go into, into convulsions to pull themselves up. They would slack and they would need oxygen and the body would... <laughs> and then slump back down. Sometimes for days... And then when the body could do it no longer, they would suffocate or drown in their own blood or go into cardiac arrest. If the guards wanted to speed along the process, they would take something and they would break the legs so you could no longer push yourself up to get breath. And the men who were tortured in this way would hang there without any way to stop themselves from losing all breath. And they would die a horrible, painful death. And Paul says, I rejoice in this torture device. I glory in this torture device. It is everything to me. Why? I'll tell you why. Because Paul knew, perhaps better than any of us, that on the cross of Christ, he was liberated. He was set free from all of his guilt and all of his shame forever. Paul knew that the cross was enough for him. We lost a dear brother a couple weeks ago. John Polking built this cross and if you knew John, he was a tough dude, man. I would not want to meet John in a dark alley. He was strong as a horse. And I remember one time when he was sick, I was talking to him in the foyer and I did the pastor thing. I said, hey brother, how can I pray for you? And he just punched me. I mean, he really punched me. Like he punched me right in the shoulder so hard that he turned me around. And he goes, don't ask me that question. You know how to pray for me. You pray that I'd be a warrior. I said, okay, okay, I will. Worked with his hands, he's a carpenter. But I'll tell you what. When he reacted with his cross, he turned into a little baby lamb. He would come every uh, Easter and set it up in the foyer 
and he'd be up on a ladder hanging the, the safety stuff and his face would just be stained with tears. I remember one time we were taking it outside. It takes a lot to get this thing in here because you have to angle it through the doors and it's heavy and carrying it, gosh, carrying it this week. Oh. And I know it's a symbol, right? And I know this. Went out there and looked at it in the garage and just humbled. I remember we were carrying it out one time and John just was overwhelmed, humbled, tears in his eyes. He had real intense eyes, man. Whew. And he'd look at you with those intense eyes and they'd be filled with tears. And I remember he's one of the only people aside from my mom that called me Joey. And he was, he was just... And I remember he looked at me, he goes, Joey, he did that for me, man. I can't imagine it. I can't imagine that he did that for me. We've lost our awe of the cross of Christ. It doesn't sober us like it used to. Paul glories and exalts in the cross because it's enough for him. And here's what we do, brothers and sisters. I'm going I'm to show you. Functionally. When you and I put something in the box, when we say, I can add something to Christ, I can add something to my salvation, it's Jesus plus anything. When we add anything in the box, it is functionally like being there on that day. Put yourself there if you could. And the perfect, holy son of God is being murdered. Not because he deserves it, but because I deserve it. And because you deserve it. And because the only way to fix our sin problem is for him to die in our place. To add anything functionally is to do this. You're not enough for me. That, dear Lord, is not enough for me. Do you see how that ought to humble us? We don't think about it that way when we're trying to earn God's favor, when we're trying to do outward things to cause him to love us. But practically, functionally, when we put something in the box, when we add something to Jesus, we're making a statement that the cross is not enough, that it's insufficient, that Jesus needs us to pick up the slack. The old hymn says, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count as loss 
and, this is, I love this, and pour contempt on all of my pride. May we never believe that our sin is too great for our Savior to handle. You want to hear the best news on the planet, friends? The crucifixion, the death, the blood poured out from the body of Jesus Christ is enough for your sin and your shame and your guilt. It's enough. Jesus doesn't need your help. Jesus plus nothing is everything. This is Paul's only boast. It is the place where something supernatural happens on so many levels. On so many levels. He goes on to say that the, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So what is he saying? Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So the world has been crucified to Paul. See, he's got a vision of the cross. He's got a picture of the cross and all of that, all that it accomplishes. And so what he's saying is everything else that the world has to offer is crucified. It's nothing to me. It's trash to me. It's zero compared to the cross. And then on the flip side, he says, and I've been crucified to the world. So he invites the looks of scorn on himself as if he were the crucified one. See, the people standing around the cross that day would have looked at the cross with horror, with disgust. They would have thought this man a fool, and so clearly anyone who follows him is equally a fool. And that's what Paul's saying. You will be crucified to the world. You follow this man, this crucified man, you're a fool. Just own it. If you're going to follow Jesus, people are going to think you're nuts. And Paul says, it's okay, it's my only boast. It's my only boast. Nothing else matters. It doesn't matter how they, people look at me. If we have everything, that the world can offer. All of it. All of your wildest dreams come true and you do not have Jesus. You have nothing. But if you don't have a penny to your name, if you don't have a friend in the world, if you have nothing, but you have Jesus, you have Everything, my friends. Everything. He says in verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Right? He, re he reiterates that earlier point. It's not about outward. Get off the outward. It's about new creation. It's about taking out the heart of stone and getting a heart of flesh. And nothing that you can do on the outward 
Nothing you do in your own power can do what supernaturally only Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can do. And then he says, I love this. And for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. I just want to ask you today, do you live with peace and mercy upon you? Because here's where Paul brings it down to sort of just a practical level. If you and I think I've got to add something, I've got to work really hard, I've got to get to church on time, I've got to make sure that I do all of the lists of things that I have, all of the religious things, you're never going to live in peace. If you think that you've got to pick up some of the slack of the cross, you can't live in peace. You're always going to be running, trying to do enough, trying to earn his favor. This is what every other religion tries to sell. Work really hard and then maybe God will love you. There's no peace there. There's no sense of feeling mercy, favor that is unmerited by our actions. Look, I don't know where you are in your life. I don't know what brought you in the doors this morning. But here's, here's what I want to tell you. If you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ today, you don't have to go through any special ritual. You don't have to say any special prayer. You don't have to stand up or sit down or do a dance. If you would just say to yourself in prayer today, Jesus, I believe that your death on the cross is enough to take my sin and my shame and wash it away forever. The Bible promises you that the Holy Spirit will come into you and will begin to, to, to cause you to live in peace and under the, under the weight of grace. And he will take out your old heart that's sinful and he will give you a, a heart of flesh that would cause you to love him. And then your whole life changes. Then the outward stuff begins to change. The Holy Spirit will do a work that you cannot do. But it starts first with something inward that you can't change on yourself, on, on your own. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, would you put your faith in him this morning? He will take care of the rest. He's enough for you. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we need days like today where the cross re-humbles us. I'll tell you what, I have needed this text this week. We run around so busy and so full of ourselves. Maybe I do. I do. I've needed some time to just consider all that he's done. We're going to take communion together this morning. And as we close, I'm going to ask the ushers to come and begin to pass the elements. And if you would, you can pass them.
Here's what I would ask. If you're not a follower of Christ, this is really important, so don't let the ushers moving distract you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, just please pass the tray by. I'm going to ask you just to respect that communion is for followers of Jesus. And I would hope that in the next few moments as we take communion together and as we pray and as we sing, that you would learn a little bit more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and that seeing what the family of Jesus does to remember him would cause you to want to be a part of that family. So if you are not a believer, please just pass the tray by. As I considered, this just happened to be the week we do the Lord's Supper once a month. And it fell on this week. And I thought to myself, isn't it weird that we would do an outward ritual? You know? But it's a good opportunity for us to learn. Because here's the thing. When we take the bread and the cup together, oh, let me just mention to you, if, if you need gluten-free, they're right in the center in the back. So if you need gluten-free, you can go ahead and, and grab that. But communion, what communion is meant to do, it's meant to cause us to remember the cross and the death of Christ and to humble us. It's not meant to forgive our sins. It doesn't have that kind of power. It's not meant to make us in better standing with God so that he might love us. It's meant to cause us to remember the horror of the cross and that the king of glory kept on humbling himself until he died for you and for me. As the ushers continue to pass, we're going to sing a song, and I would ask you to begin to prepare your hearts for the taking of communion, that if you need to confess sin, that you would do that, that as we sing, you would say with Paul, far be it from me, that I would boast in anything but the cross.